Running a business isn't all glamour and success stories. You're about to hear from a real founder in the trenches. I'm here to help them find clarity, have a space to get their ideas out in the open, and figure out how they're going to move forward. Welcome to the Talk to Stefan podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tarek Fancy, who is the founder and CEO of Rumi. Welcome to the Founder Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So can you give us a quick overview of what it is that Rumi does? So Rumi is actually a nonprofit that makes free, uh, makes learning as easy and fun as social media. The idea being to facilitate a new kind of learning that's based on micro learning, where you learn discrete skills and concepts and sort of five or six minute snippets, all mobile first, and all in a way that gives you a dopamine rush you know, for learning a new skill or concept, uh, but that creates value for your life over time rather than, of course, a dopamine rush from, you know, refreshing Instagram that over time will start to negatively affect your mental health. Okay. And how have things been going so far? So we have seen uh, a really good reaction to our launch of microlearning. We launched it about a year ago. Vermi has been around for a number of years, and we our first iteration, we were starting to do the most simple task of bringing the free digital learning revolution to the offline world. We built a set of tools that allowed us to go and do programs where, you know, UNICEF used it for refugees in the Middle East. It was used, you know, really around the world by partner organizations who saw tremendous potential from using digital education, but then they had infrastructure constraints, you know, for internet and so on. We're building tools around that. And then um, we evolved it to the this sort of newer approach based on micro learning in the last year, uh, because we, we knew from our data that, you know, we would get higher engagement doing it this way and thus, you know, create more social impact, which is our underlying goal. And uh, so since we launched micro learning just over a year ago, it was of course during the pandemic, which meant that people were looking for things like this more. And so we've grown it from, you know, uh, we had, I think really zero courses, you know, just over a year ago, or micro courses or bites as we call them. And we launched with about 50 just, just around a year ago or so. And now we have just hit across 1,000, and we're probably producing you know, 30, 40 a week easily. Part of that's because we have a volunteer community that's doing most of the heavy lifting. So there's over 3,500 volunteers that have been involved, and that's growing. So think of that as like a Wikipedia-like model, just with better QA, because you know, we, we vet the community before they join, and we vet the content before it goes up. And so what we've also found is that you know, the learner numbers have increased significantly because we've gone from, you know, zero to over 100,000 learners and growing very quickly, including through partnerships with other organizations that create micro-learning content, whether it's the Center for Suicide Prevention or it's, you know, Amazon or other corporate employees who do skills-based volunteering and create, you know, content in our core areas of job life and career skills. So, so far, it's gotten a really good reaction, um, and particularly from youth when we survey them on you know, what they like and don't like about it. Okay, so it sounds like things are moving pretty quickly and in, in a good direction. Tell me a little bit more about the sort of specific challenge that you're facing at the moment. Our biggest challenge, I think, is actually you know sustaining growth. And it's arguably really a marketing question. It's how do you get people to know about what we're doing and then start to incorporate bites into their daily lives. We know that if we bring it to people, then there's generally a good reaction. We know that when we survey them, they, they really like it. And increasingly, it replaces social media. And that's, you know, we did surveys of youth, and nearly 90% said 
unprompted, we said, what does this remind you of? And they said, this reminds us of, you know, they listed a site that was a social media site. That was fascinating because it means that we're not competing with Coursera or Khan Academy. It means that our approach on microlearning is built in a way that, you know, you have the five minute course on your mobile phone that you can, you know, look at when you're waiting for the bus or you're, you know, you have five minutes to kill here there. That actually then competes with social media time, right? With that addiction where people kind of need that dopamine rush and they quickly refresh. That is all fantastic and shows the potential of not just growing free learning, but doing it in a way that replaces something that's negative for your, you know, for your mental health. I think the biggest challenge we have then is that, you know, how do we get it to more people, right? How do we grow this and make it ubiquitous and part of people's daily behavior? Recognizing that, you know, our, we have a strength and a, and a weakness. Our strength is that because we're a nonprofit, you know, we uh, have the ability to engage a massive volunteer community behind what we're doing that are is willing to work for free because they care about the mission. So in that sense, it's like Wikipedia, and that's extraordinarily powerful because as they'll say, you know, Wikipedia put, you know, Britannica and Encarta and everything out of business. And so even though we're nonprofit, we're very much, you know, business oriented, right? We went through Y Combinator's program. We, you know, Harvard Business School wrote a case study some years ago. We've, we've kind of we've moved up that curve and, and, and being a nonprofit, but very, very technology oriented and efficient. But the challenge also is as a nonprofit, you don't have a profit model that you can exploit, which allows you to raise tons and tons of money through marketing, right? So if you think about the early days of Wikipedia, I don't, I mean, of course, looked at it, but their growth wasn't that they were doing, you know, buying ads and stuff, right? It had to spread through word of mouth. It had to spread through, you know, improvements in search rankings and other things. And that's kind of where we're at. We have the strength that we've built this machine that can and is scaling rapidly, right? Like this exact micro learning engine we're doing now fully in Dari, or Farsi, um, in, uh, for, girls, for programs for girls and women's education in Afghanistan. We're launching with a mobile operator, right? So it's, you could see the versatility of it, but then the challenge is, you know, to grow this, you really sometimes need a few key growth hacks that kind of get it to that next level where suddenly everyone knows about it and, you know, it starts to become part of their daily behavior. Okay. So you're talking about sort of growth hacks there. I'm interested to know to this day what's been done. You mentioned about partnerships earlier, working with a number of different organizations. How have you sort of grown to this point? So a lot of our growth has been, I mean, as you mentioned, sort of working with partners. So sometimes there are partner organizations that can bring this free learning closer to learners because they have a community and whether they can share it with them in one way or another, or they can create content on our platform. That's another way because then they're incentivized to share it. Or one way or another, you know, they, they've shared it and that's sort of been organic growth then because people then become, you know, start to become part of their daily activity. They maybe do what I've done, which is if you go to roomy.org and you start consuming bites, you just create a bookmark and throw it next to your social media apps. And I actually do that. And then every time I feel that addictive behavior, I open the folder on my phone because after a few minutes, I'm like, oh, oh, I can literally, without even thinking, open the folder where Instagram are sitting. I see the roomy learn thing. And then I say, well, wait a second, like, I have five minutes, six minutes for a hit. You know, why don't I do it for something that's actually good for me rather than something that's going to hurt me? And so I, I complete a micro course instead of, you know, loading Instagram and looking at all the, you know, pictures of people. I think that the challenge we're thinking about is like, how do you get that to the next level? You know, we don't have the model of being able to go the traditional route of a, of a large, you know, or growing for-profit where you have some kind of, you know, you have some kind of revenue model to exploit from, from users, whether it's selling ads or subscriptions or this or that. 
And you know, if you have that, you can then raise a lot of money to invest behind growth. And obviously, if you get your numbers right, then you're growing at a you know at a cost that makes sense given the revenue you'll get from customers and so on. You know, if on the other hand you're doing something like what we're doing, where you're bringing them a free resource again, like a Wikipedia, you know, you don't have there's no really model to go and invest heavily behind growth in a significant way because you're not monetizing the users and it's hard to raise money. It's not profit, so. So you just kind of need to find ways for people to, you know, figure out about this and use it themselves. The great news is that we've had fantastic results when people find out about it. And so all of our growth is organic. The challenge still is that, you know, to get to the kind of impact that we want to have and to make bytes, right? The micro courses that we create, you know, ubiquitous that can be shared quickly, created, shared, you know, five snippets through WhatsApp or this or that on various topics to, you know, to get to the level where we know it can go. We're just going to need to figure out, I think, you know, a model or some growth hacks or something that gets us to that, you know, to that holy land, right? And we're sort of still figuring that piece out. Okay. And with you working, I know that you've got a team. Have you got marketing people already working on this? We do, yep. And they're working on it. And I think looking at a few different areas, um, you know, one of them is working with influencers who um, create content then and share it. Um, as I mentioned, the astronaut Chris Hadfield and others now we're, we're talking to who are creating content that will be shared under their name, right? So they so it's like writing a Wikipedia article if you're scribble, although it's not because of course it's an actual discrete course where you communicate a concept. A lot of influencers and celebrities, public science experts, and so on, it's easy for them to do, and there's a strong impetus to sort of create like a bite of your own and then share it. And that actually actually is good both for our content and credibility as well as, of course, growth because then, you know, it starts to spread through word of mouth because you're working with people who have existing audiences. But that's probably the biggest, I mean, there's a number of other things we're doing behind the scenes. But, you know, again, it all comes down to being creative and not just sort of being able to throw a lot of marketing dollars, you know, at the problem. Okay. And do you think that if you were to sort of use this influencer strategy or head down this route of other people's audiences and accessing new users through that, do you think that would be sufficient in sort of achieving your goals? I think so. I mean, I, I think it, there's going to be, have to be a mix of things, right, to get, you know, to that, from that point. You know, getting from zero to over 100,000 learners was very difficult because it didn't exist. You know, there was advantages. It was a pandemic, and so presumably people were looking a bit more for stuff like this, but, or maybe not, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of other options, but you know, certainly being able to show that it works really well with our target audience and the studies we've done with learners, particularly youth, are are really interesting. Because it's, it's not just it's five minutes in mobile first. We've also built the entire you know, model around engagement. So even if you're learning a, a lesson on a very serious topic, there'll be memes, you know, there could be animated GIFs. It's kind of like the difference between watching the news and it's like a boring news anchor and then or you're watching the news and it's Trevor Noah or Jon Stewart or, you know, Someone who's going to take that same thing, but make it a lot more entertaining for a younger audience. In some level, that's what we're doing. It's bite-sized, it's quick, it's mobile first, it's engaging. But that part's all great, but yeah, the, you know, then you still need to sort of get that next level, right? Um, and, and make it ubiquitous. And um, what does that next level look like? If you'd sort of expand on that a bit further, what, what does that next level contain? Where we're trying to go with it is that this can become someday, eventually, like the Wikipedia of microlearning which is to say it's all open and free like Wikipedia. It's all driven by contributors who create all of the underlying 
content, again, like Wikipedia. So the model really scaled. And I think that done well, the machine we have for rapidly creating content. And again, if you think about it, it's like it took us, you know, uh, we started with 50-ish courses and we've, you know, slogged our way to a thousand over the last year. Now we're creating, actually approaching 50 um, per week, right? So that's the power of that volunteer community that I think does 95% of the work. You look at that and you think, well, we have a rapid authoring platform. We have a proven model to scale taking people who have skills to give and, you know, and distilling it into insights. And so I think that where we could see it going is a, is a free, is a Wikipedia free learning where it covers every topic. It covers, you know, every language, right? Again, we're doing stuff in Afghanistan now, all local language. We all created the content for it all in the last year. Of course, remotely, we couldn't travel or do anything. You know, the way I look at it, if we've done a really good job, we should be covering topics that, number one, that bring value to learners, but are not taught in the regular school system. That's one of our sort of things is that like, it's stuff they need that they don't get in the in K-12 classrooms. Because generally speaking, government mandated curriculums just move too slowly for the needs of people. And so, you know, anything from financial literacy to how to get a job to all these other things. Those are the, what are most in demand by the community. So we meet those. So I think we can kind of build out the content library. We can build it out across different areas, across different languages, and have it moving rapidly enough that the content is highly topical and recent. Like we had stuff recently, you know, within days of the Canadian government putting out, you know, COVID-19 app, you know, we had a bite or a micro course on like how to use it, how to download it. And, you know, we got really good feedback that people were sharing it and downloading it because of that. Because to be honest, like, again, our, our approach pedagogically is far more engaging and interesting to the person than like going and reading the government website, right? Which, you know, will have the right information, but it's not exactly you know, like the most readable or easy to find or engaging. So, you know, there's a lot of ways we can go with it, but I do think it's more and more content that covers all of the areas that people want. Number two is responsive and quick. So it's, you know, that machine is operating to quickly meet demands and it's doing it across cultures and languages. And done well, you could see how, you know, anyone with a mobile phone then has the ability to, to start to quickly take advantage of, of free courses that work on any device, even a feature phone, and all, you know, sort of are intended to make learning on your mobile device easy and fun. Okay. So it sounds like the content side you've really got covered. You can see where that's going and what that might look like. You've already got your volunteers in place, uploading a lot of content, producing a lot of content. You've then potentially got content coming from the influencer side and for them to share bites and for their audience. I'm wondering what, what else is there in terms of growth, bringing it back to growth of users. What else is on your mind in terms of options there? I think for growth of, of, of users, there's a few different ones we, we could do. I mean, one that we've thought a lot about has been working in partnership with organizations that have a strong incentive to bring this closer to their learners. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we've been talking to the laundromats, you know, sort of industry group in the U.S. And they operate slash are sort of the body for all the, you know, laundromats. Why that's interesting is because when someone is at a laundromat, they tend to just be sit, sit there and wait for a while, right? Because they're waiting for their clothes to dry, whatever. So all the laundromats have free Wi-Fi these days. When you connect... Apparently what their data shows is that people connect and then they instantly go to like Instagram or Facebook, whatever. So they're taking that value that's being given to them. Um, and same with public Wi-Fi and other things. And they're, all they're doing is using that pipeline to go and, you know, sort of serve out an addiction, frankly, where, 
you know, they go and they want to get the dopamine rush and, you know, whatever, but social. And so what we ended up working with them on is the idea that you can have, you know, when someone connects to the Wi-Fi, the, the landing page that they hit is a roomy learn page or you serve them a few bytes or you do something. So that instead of just saying, here's a connection, you take it and then they go straight to Instagram and make, you know, Zuckerberg money is kind of more of like, well, wait a second, what, like, why don't we just give them uh, good alternatives and make those ones the sort of default or easy ones to do. And then, uh, and then see how we can sort of start to, you know, create behavior change that way. So that's one avenue, right? You bring it closer to them because it loads on the Wi-Fi. We're doing a public library, those things. You know, another one is people sharing it amongst themselves, right? Um, there's a whole bunch of different things like that, but you know, we're trying to do it all while not having a native inbuilt app, simply because it adds friction to the process. Right now, the easier it is to let people try it, and frankly, the better you have to. What's the hardest part with all of this? It seems like you've got a few options there. What's what's the hardest part right now? I have to say, it's funny to me. Marketing is one of those areas that anytime I ever heard of it when I was early in business, I like took it for granted. And I was like, oh, that sounds like easy to do. I did business school and I was getting an MBA and like everyone kind of was like, oh, you don't need to study for marketing, right? Because the assumption that you kind of like make it up, whatever. And everyone assumed that finance and other ones are the hard ones. I spent a career in finance. I know a bit about marketing, but I think it's a really difficult field. Because, you know, you sometimes I don't know exactly what to do. And so we're doing it on a little bit of a, you know, on trying to get the most out of the resources we have. But I think that that's the challenge that I think is the most interesting to us now is that what are the growth hacks or approaches we can use to make sure that we get in front of a lot of people and show this to them. And, you know, no one is ever against it when they learn about five minute free micro courses that are available to the wall. Right. But the challenge is getting their attention. Okay, so getting potential users' attention and how how you're going about that, and is that something that say your marketing team working on this week, for instance, is that a priority right now? Yeah, it's a priority every week. It's something that I've been working on a lot. One of the ways I try to tie it together is that simultaneously to running Rumi, I'm also sort of on the side, starting to kick up a little bit of a fuss around Wall Street's commitments on climate change. That sounds like a completely random non sequitur, but the background is that I actually spent a long career in finance before founding Rumi. I went back a few years ago to become the chief investment officer for sustainable investing at BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager. Came to the conclusion that most of what Wall Street's talking about when they say they're investing behind climate change and so on and so forth is, I hate to say it, it's, it's kind of just smoke and mirrors. Knowing the industry from the inside and having sat in the middle of the machine, it was very clear to me that it was actually dangerous because it was creating complacency. And so interesting, I'm in the position now of kind of growing Rumi and then, because that's what I'm doing day to day. And then also, you know, in the press, doing, you know, sort of pushing this message heavily. And it's, you know, it's been in The Economist, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Independent, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, et cetera. But starting to bubble up a bit. And I, we're trying to connect them a little bit, right? Because one of the most important things I think that we can do is use this new pedagogical approach around microlearning, which is really interesting because it's learner centric. Right. It, we allow for personalized learning paths. We allow for something that has to bring value to the learner. And it has to be something that not just they need, which is most of what the education space focuses on. You need this. Our view is it has to be an overlap between what you need and what you want. Right. You have to actually want to do it because you don't. We deal with learning programs where the audience is not captive. You don't have them in a classroom where you can just show them one hour video and walk the door. Right. They're all doing it on their phone. And so that, you know, your competition TikTok notifications, whatever. It's very difficult. And we've gotten 
to a point where you have a really good model for doing it. And I think one area is now connecting back to uh, the other work that I've been doing around sort of helping people understand how the economic system works and therefore what are the levers that we need to move in order to actually, you know, lower greenhouse gas emissions or, or do something meaningful to fight climate change. Okay. So it sounds like you've got these two aspects going on. They're a little bit independent at the moment, but you're looking to bring those together. How do you see them coming together? I think that the most effective way will probably be, or is, or what we're going to do is a series of micro courses on the relevant areas on this topic and theme. Because honestly, with, you know, you have a whole lot of stuff coming out of Wall Street saying, oh, we're doing this great stuff and we're going to fix climate change. And honestly, with like, five micro courses, I could explain to people why that's impossible. And I mean, I know from the inside it's impossible, but it's, and here's it, it's, not, it's impossible, not like for the world, it's impossible without government regulation. My answer publicly has been very clear. It's that relying on Wall Street to self-regulate itself is suicidal, as we've learned in recent decades. And that is effectively what they're asking for when they go out and talk about ESG or this idea of environmental and social and governance funds. They're effectively trying to create a narrative where, you know, everyone believes that they're doing the right thing and therefore they don't need regulation. And in reality, nothing's changing underneath, you know, the surface. Um, And that's actually something where I look at it and I think, you know, you have five. I mean, to be honest, I've just shared, of course, we'll be sharing more on social learning, but like a few micro courses and you could just they're like links in a chain, right, where each link creates the argument and shows you that if you have a system that's legally and financially obligated to create profits and you combine that with market failures like the fact that you know it's cheaper to burn fossil fuels than we need for it to be because there's no pollution tax still in 2021 there's no carbon tax then it really doesn't matter what else you do because in a sense those two are going to combine to create a situation where there's more and more money and funding going to the kinds of companies like fossil fuel providers that would rather have less of okay and you said there at the start of that point about you could do it within sort of five bites and educate people on that and tell them what's going on. And we're doing what's, what's sort of holding you back from doing that? Well, we're doing it now, actually. So we've, I created a bite recently on, and this will be a good example. I mean, the, the bites we create across a whole bunch of topics that are, again, not considered K-12, which is sort of, a, I guess, in the U.S. term, probably for kindergarten to grade 12. They're outside of the core, you know, school curriculum. And that's because that's where we're just responsive to the youth in the community. And so they're basically saying we want, you know, financial literacy. And it's kind of crazy. Right? People graduate from, at least in North America, they graduate from high school and they don't know how mortgage works. They don't know how credit card rates work. And you think, well, these are the most important financial decisions you'll make in your life. You know, how did you graduate from school and not know that? And somehow you know some arcane topic that no one needs. And so, you know, that's actually where we're filling a gap because we're listening to youth and we're filling in areas. and so. You have mental health, you have how to get a job. You have all these areas. If you go to roomy.org, you'll see on the left that are the trending and growing areas because it's what communities want. And I think the way this will land is that, you know, we'll have a series of bites that move around the topic of what I call fixing the rules, which, you know, fixing the rules is pretty simple. It's that if we want to change the system to have lower inequality, lower carbon emissions and, and a whole bunch of other things, the answer is really obvious. It's that competitive markets are like competitive sports, right? And, you know, every competitive sport has rules and referees. Well, so does capitalism, right? There's no such thing as a free market. There are rules for everything from property rights to pollution fines and this, that, and the other. 
and we need to fix them, right? In 2021, they have not. I think that from the best I can tell, from the 1980s, there was a set of free market ideologies that came out, Thatcher and Reagan era kind of, and they still permeate the system, lead us to sort of create fantasies that we don't need government action because the market will solve itself with ESG and sustainable investing and all these things. I think the more that we can sort of debunk that, and the faster we can do it, the better, so that in particular young people who want to make a difference on these topics are not sort of sitting there thinking what to do. So one of the bites, even example, I just created a bite on, and I shared it on social media, was what are the similarities between COVID-19 and climate change? And it's fascinating because COVID-19 is a systemic curve that science tells us we need to flatten. And so we use government action, right? Restricted travel, we all these things quickly to flatten the infections curve. The experts are telling us the exact same thing with climate change. They're saying, no, no, you need government action to flatten the greenhouse gas emissions curve. You need a price on carbon. You need vehicle emissions limits. You need energy efficiency standards. None of those are yet happening. And I think that they're not happening because it's a political question more. It's that you have a lot of people have short-term interests. And frankly, they're not paid to care about sustainability. They're paid to care about the next quarter. And they're going to fight to preserve that system as long as they can. Okay. And following what you're saying, so just thinking about sort of wrapping up here for today, in terms of what you're focusing on next, you mentioned that you've got this sort of influencer strategy, you've got courses that you're putting out to connect both your sort of um, climate change work and the roomy side of things. What else is there that you're doing? You know, right now, I mean, those are the main areas. We're, we're thinking about a few other things, but to be honest, right now, we're at this point where we're trying to figure out what has the highest return on investment. And I mean, investment, you know, less from us throwing money at it again and more of our time and energy and what seems to actually drive the, you know, move the needle, right? I mean, you know, and, and to get it in front of people. And frankly, one of them is podcasts, right, as an example, right? I mean, obviously, we will understand that we exist now. Maybe a few listeners will have some really good ideas. And if so, they should tweet me or whatever, because I'd, I'd love to hear them, right? I mean, we're, this is all open and free. It's Creative Commons, right? So we're just trying to get it to the people who need it. But yeah, at this point, I think, you know, it's a number of ideas like that. And I think, you know, the, the ones that I'm leaning towards a little bit are the getting influencers involved to help create content and spread the word and, and connecting it, I'd say, to, you know, hot button issues that people care about. And climate change is obviously, the, you know, one of the forefront of that. Okay. And in terms of the influencer side, how far have you progressed with that as a sort of strategy? You mentioned you've already got some... Yeah, it's still really early. It's one of those things where, where it's a bit of chicken or egg. Like we have a good brand and are well known, but in certain markets and not, you know, everywhere. And so, you know, I'd say that some part of it is like, get people on board to do this. Do you have, you know, we have to kind of grow our brand enough, but then to grow our brand, we need them to help us do it. And so, you know, it's sort of this piece where, again, because we're not throwing money into paying them, we needed to... We need to be able to reach these people and we need to be able to create something that, you know, there's something in it for them also. And so we're kind of solving that, but I'd say that, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are now. What will it take for you to get uh, move forward from that? I know it's a chicken and egg situation, but how do you, where do you take action? You know, it's, it's hard to say, honestly, I think about it. It's hard to read. I'd say, I think a little bit of luck of having sort of, more people hear about it, spread the word, and then maybe a few people with bigger voices start to push it, and you have that inflection point. I mean, again, the growth is there, right? It is, it is growing, but it's all around accelerating growth as much as we can uh, and making sure that the momentum carries. Okay, excellent. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn a little bit more either about you, Rumi, 
Um, well, so if they want to check out Rumi itself, just go to rumi.org, uh, R-U-M-I-E.org, either on your phone or your desktop, and you'll see, you know, see Rumi Learn a whole bunch of content, and it's all, again, you know, free to anyone to use. The second way I'd say would be to follow us on social. So either Rumi Learn is the handle on most sites, or, or myself, I'm, I'm uh, so, so fancy, which is the playoff my last name. And that, you know, we'll be sharing more and more on as we grow new micro courses, new bites, ones that are aligned to specific topical themes. And I think that's probably, those are the easiest ways to do it. But I mean, again, the growth is accelerating. So we're hoping to share a lot of exciting things and definitely want to grow our community of people who are interested in, in trying out micro learning, right? And seeing how that can help them, you know, take maybe a little bit of a partial diet from social media and, you know, frankly, do their mental health a, a lot of good. Wonderful, that sounds like a uh, yeah, good bit of advice. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Goodbye. My pleasure. There you have it. Thanks for listening. You'll find me at talkstefan.com or at talkstefan on Twitter. Drop me a message if you're interested in either being a guest on the podcast or working together. Take care for now.